The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. We're going to read the whole of Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. And keep in mind what you heard last week if you were here. Really, Exodus 2 and 3 belong together. The schooling of Moses at the hand of God, uh, the preparation ready to make him the redeemer of God's people. So let's give our diligent attention then to the word of God. Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame out of fire, out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see it, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face. For he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people of Egypt out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, 
I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it, After that, he will let you go, and I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. We pray to you, the Lord, the God of our father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, work in us now that we might receive from your good hand every good word that comes forth this night. Give me words to speak, almighty God. Give us all ears and hearts to hear and to receive. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wonder if you've ever been in a classroom setting And at the end of that classroom setting, you've come out learning more about the teacher than about the subject being taught. Perhaps you can think of those times. We would say that's probably not a healthy teaching environment, for you're there to learn about the subject, not the person teaching the subject. That's not a healthy place to be unless you're found in Exodus chapter 3. And God Almighty is your teacher. What we find here is God equipping Moses, equipping Moses to serve him, not by teaching Moses about himself, but by teaching Moses about God, about the Lord, the covenant-keeping God. The teacher is teaching about himself, and therein is the equipping of Moses to go back down into Egypt and be a redeemer for the people of of God. In this case, learning more about the teacher than the actual acts of Exodus is more important for Moses, and I say to us perhaps also, it is more important for us also as New Covenant Christians that we learn more of God, more of the Savior Jesus Christ, more of the Spirit's work in us, because it's in the declaration of God's gospel love towards us the proclamation of his covenant faithfulness that he calls us to trust him and to serve him. When we set our eyes upon almighty God, then, friends, we're given a vision of faith and service. So it was for Moses, so I pray shall it be for us also. God here is teaching Moses about himself. And principally, he teaches him four things, four things about the true and living God. In the first six verses, we see that the God of Exodus is holy. The God of Exodus is 
holy. Secondly, in verses 6 to 12, following on in verse 6 there, the God of Exodus remembers his covenant. He remembers covenant. Verses 13 and 14, the God of Exodus has a personal name, which we'll see is attached to his covenant and attached to his merciful working. And finally, the God of Exodus will deliver his people. He's holy. He remembers his covenant. He has a personal name and he will deliver his people. This is the lesson that Moses is exposed to upon the mountain of God, Mount Horeb. The first lesson is this, the God of Exodus is holy. Isn't it remarkable that the almighty and the holy God should see fit to draw near to a humble shepherd? That's what we find Moses doing there in verse 1. Not the first time this happens, he draws near to David. In the New Testament, we also see him drawing near to the shepherds at the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. Moses is in an lowly estate. He was a prince of Egypt. Now he's a shepherd in Midian. That's quite a remarkable change for anyone. Notwithstanding the fact that Moses had been raised in Egypt as a prince of Egypt with the wisdom of Egypt ringing in his ears. I'm reminded back in Genesis 46 verse 34 that all Egyptians hate shepherds. And here is Moses reduced now from the royal household down to the level of a shepherd, hated by the Egyptians, yet it is to he that the holy, almighty God reveals himself in the burning bush by the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord calling Moses into service. The God, our God, calls the humble into his service. And he commissions Moses to serve him as a redeemer. And that commission comes to him in the most remarkable of fashions. Verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. The angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a burning bush. Moses turns aside, verse 3, looks at the bush. It was burning, yet it was not consumed. This is truly a miraculous sight for Moses. The bush is burning, but is not destroyed. Why? Because it's the angel of the Lord appearing in the burning bush. It's clear who this angel of the Lord is. It's not an angel. Angel means messenger. It is the Lord himself, verse 6. And he said, I am the God of your father. That's the angel of the Lord speaking. Verse 7, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. The angel of the Lord is God himself. The, The fiery burning bush is what we call a theophany. A theophany. It is an appearance of the Son of God prior to his incarnation that we know in the New Covenant era. When we read of the angel of the Lord throughout the Old Testament, in most cases we are learning of a pre-incarnation appearance of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is he who has come to speak to Moses and to commission Moses to this work of redeeming his people. It is God's very presence 
In the burning bush, it is the sun calling Moses under him. The Hebrew tells us there in verse 2 and 3 that Moses has an intense desire to turn aside. I will indeed, is the idea, I will indeed turn aside and see this great sight. The Hebrew language behind that idea of great sight is found elsewhere, referring to cherubim. It's also found in Numbers 9 and verse 15, where it speaks of the glory cloud, the very presence of God descending down upon the tabernacle. Here, without, with, without doubt, is God himself in the burning bush, appearing to Moses through the medium of fire. Fire. Uh, There's multiple significations to the idea of God and fire in Scripture. We know that the fire of God is likened unto destruction and judgment. And we're going to see that, as it were, poured out on the Egyptians shortly in the book of Exodus. It is judgment that God will bring through fire, but often also fire refers to the holiness of God. Fire is a picture of the burning, consuming holiness that is God. And yet here, the burning bush, the briar, burns but is not consumed. Burns but is not destroyed. The holy character of God in this setting does not consume, does not destroy, does not destroy Moses. Yet we know that fire will consume, do we not, if we approach it carelessly? God will consume if we approach him carelessly. This is why Moses is instructed by God, verse 5, not to come any nearer the bush and to remove his sandals. Moses is not to risk getting too close to the holiness of God, lest he be consumed. Yet the passage is clear. He was not consumed. Remaining at something of a distance, removing his sandals. Why is he doing that? Sandals ordinarily protected him from the pollution of the ground. Yet here he removes them because he's standing, as God tells him, on holy ground, the mountain of God, Mount Horeb, which I believe we'll find verse 12 is actually Mount Sinai. Here is Moses at Sinai, the mountain of God, before the law was given, before the old covenant was given. Here is God saying, I will redeem my people. It's the mountain of the old covenant upon which Moses finds himself now, where the law was given, where God entered into that covenant, where God descended down in the clouds with fire and thunder and smoke. It's the mountain, ultimately, Exodus 24, where the rulers of the people, after the covenant had been made, went up the mountain, met with God, and ate and drank in his presence. And just like Exodus 24, here now in Exodus 3 with Moses, mere mortals come face to face with a manifestation of the holy God. And they are not consumed. And it's not always the case 
It's not always the case that people come away unscathed. When people approach God carelessly at times, we see God blotting them out. Nadab and Abihu offended against the holiness of God by worshipping in their own way and he destroyed them with fire. Think again of Uzzah who put his hand out and touched the ark of the Lord which it was forbidden to touch. He struck down instantly. Think of Sinai itself at the making of the old covenant that even if an animal touched the mountain of God it would be destroyed. Such friends is the holiness of our God. But here is Moses, spared, looking on the fire, this great sight. I will turn aside to see this great sight. He looks on the fire, as it were, he comes face to face with God in the burning bush and is not consumed. The holiness of God is manifested here. We know that holiness, we often think of it, don't we, as being sinlessness. And that's true. But it's not the essential meaning of holiness in Scripture. Holiness means being separated from that which is common. It's being set apart, sanctified, set apart from ordinary use. That is true of God. He is transcendent. And he is holy in his transcendence. And to transgress God's holiness, friends, is to transgress a definitive attribute of who God is. And it is to transgress that definitive distinction between him and us. That's why it's necessary for Moses to come carefully before the burning bush, not to come too near, not to come with his shoes on. And it's why it's important for us not to transgress the holiness of God. We're reminded, are we not, as Moses, as it's true for Israel, were it not for the grace and mercy of God to us, his holiness would be a barrier to us also. Holiness in the Old Covenant, while God drew near to his people, God was always at a distance. Even when the tabernacle was in the midst of God's people, the holiness of God prohibited entry to the tabernacle and prohibited entry to the Holy of Holies. The temple had a thick curtain laid across the Holy of Holies so that no one could enter it except the high priest and then only once a year. And yet, friends, are we not reminded that the death of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary, that curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom, never again to be remade? Because, friends, now at this very moment, you have entered the Holy of Holies, the very presence of God himself. We are now in the holiest presence of God. He is here now. That's why, friends, there's no place like this room on the face of the earth, apart from other true places of worship. 
Is it not remarkable to us this night that we can enter the holy presence of God and not be destroyed? And we know why that is, don't we, friends? It's because the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. Do we understand, friends, we're not told this night, stay back. Remain at a distance. Do not come close to me. Rather, God has bid you come. We start every service with a call to worship that is God summoning you into his presence. Not erecting various courts so that you can stay out of his presence. He calls you into his presence. And you can do this every day in your own homes. On your own, with your families. Twice on Sunday you can come into the holy presence of God. Because of Christ. Who has opened a way for us. This is remarkable, friends. This, should fi- this alone should fill our hearts with wonder at this place. That we who are natively unholy can enter now the Holy of Holies. But not just that, moreover, God's holiness assures us that all his ways and all his actions are untouched by sin or by frailty or by changed change. The suffering of the Israelites that, the, that God saw here is a product of the holiness of God. The death of the firstborn of Egypt will be a product of the holiness of God. The destruction of the Egyptians in the sea is a product of the holiness of God. Even the death of our Lord Jesus Christ is a product of the holiness of God. God simply doesn't get it wrong. His holiness is unimpeachable. There's no gainsaying it. So wherever we find ourselves in life under whatever hardship, we must understand one of God's defining attributes is holiness. He will not do what is wrong. And friends, secure that in your hearts in the day of blessing, so that when you're faced by the day of challenge and providence presses down hard on you, you can say, whate'er my God ordains is right, because my God is holy, always holy, and perfectly holy. And yet without his mercy, holiness would fill us with terror Thank the Lord that he is also, verse 6 again, a God who remembers covenant. A God who remembers covenant. Holiness for the Christian is ultimately not a separating factor between God and us. Because God has extended his covenant to his people. Immediately there's an implication there, is there not? If the holiness of God naturally separates him from us, and yet holiness is not a separating factor, how does that work? It can only be in this, that God makes his people holy with his own very holiness. That's where there's a meeting point here. How does that come about? Through covenant, 
through promise, through the fulfillment of all that in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 6 points us again to the historical realities of God's relationship with his people. God says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is saying to him, Perhaps it's been after 40 years of silence from God in the wilderness. Who knows? We're not given any other indication that God spoke to him. 40 years of silence, perhaps, and now this God is revealing himself to Moses in this most remarkable way. He says, I'm the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Out of nowhere, Moses' reaction, Moses hid his face. For he was afraid to look at God. He was afraid to look at the God of his fathers. And you'll notice God does not command him to change that response. In fact, God, as it were, doubles down on on this reality of who he is. He says, I have surely seen, verse 7, the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them. Moses' reaction of hiding his face was entirely appropriate. Entirely appropriate. It shows his humble disposition before the Lord's Lord. He understands who he is before God. But the Lord has plans for Moses, plans through which he will execute and reveal his covenant-keeping faithfulness to his promise. Remember last week, Pastor Rockin preached for a time on the verbs of verse 24 of the previous chapter, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant, uh, and God saw the people, and God knew Look at verse 7 and verse 8. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are, are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Now we know ultimately God is going to work through Moses. He's going to send Moses back in. He's not going to go down himself. He will work through his servant. But he says, I have come down. You see, the work that Moses is about to do is as sure and as certain as if God came down from heaven himself to do this great work. Moreover, he promises to deliver them. Verse 8, I'll bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and of honey. He's going to deliver his people for the purpose of establishing them as his people, in the land that he promised to give to their fathers. Reminds us, does it not, surely there was a time when God came down. And God the Son came down and was born of the Virgin Mary, lived a life of perfection, and even went to death for his people. Yes, God came down. That's why the cross is greater than the exodus. Not just because it delivered people from slavery, 
but it delivered us from our sins. But Moses is that chosen instrument, verse 10. God says, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Such news is almost catastrophic to Moses, verse 11. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Moses doubts God. And yet God's response to him tells us everything we need to know about Moses' mission, about your personal walk with the Lord, and about the mission of the church. What does God say to him? Verse 12, but I will be with you. Moses says, who am I? God says, I will be with you. I will be with you. And what's more, I'll give you a sign, really interesting sign. I think one of the most interesting signs, at least the timing of it, one of the most interesting signs in all of Scripture. Look at the sign. I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Isn't that something? Well, we all want a sign up front, don't we, which tells us, well, God's on my side. But God says, no, you go forth in faith, you obey me, and then you'll come back to this mountain, and then I'll show you a sign to prove that I was with you all the time. I think we can reflect on two matters here, friends. God's promise to Moses here is the promise that he has made to every Christian, but I will be with you. I will be with you. He says, I will be with the afflicted, the heartbroken, the downcast. I will be with the rejoicing, those living in days of plenty. I will be with you. God, the Lord, I am will be with his people. God is always with his people. Our Lord Jesus said the same thing. I will never leave you or forsake you. He is simply always with us. This is one of the central promises of God's covenant to his people. I will be with you. But secondly, is it not often the case that God often confirms a course of action to us after the event? Why would God do that? Just like he's giving a sign to Moses after the exodus has happened. Why is he doing that for Moses? Why does God do the same for us? Well, if he did it before the event, if he confirmed uh, what we plan to do by stepping out in faith, then it wouldn't require faith, would it? It wouldn't require trust in Almighty God. If he gave us signs of success prior to the event of obedience, then we'd put our trust in the signs, not in God. And God wants our trust in him. And so he sees fit to often bless after the event, to give confirmation after the event, as he will give here with Moses. We should... Be, we should never be afraid 
We should never be afraid of any circumstance before us, no matter how grievous it is. Never lose trust in God or in his word. And the word of the Lord is as sure a sign as you will get, my friend. You don't need signs from outside of the word. The word is tried and tested. Because that word that God gives us here and in all of scripture is tied to a person. A person with a personal name, verses 13 and verse 14. Notwithstanding God's assurance, I will be with you. Moses still doubts, verse 13. If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say? He's still questioning, is he not? He still has doubts. We know that reality. We're faced by it frequently. What does God do? He reveals to him his personal name. Perhaps it's a name that's fallen by the wayside during their time in Egypt. I don't know that for a fact. But God says this to him. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I am who I am. Verse 14, he says, I am has sent me to you. Verse 15, we have capitalized, we have the word Lord. The Hebrew, each one of those ideas, I am who I am, I am has sent me to you, and the word Lord, it's all based around the same Hebrew word. It's where we get the name of God from. Some people say the name is Yahweh, though we don't know because the word never had any vowels in the Hebrew Some people today call it Jehovah. That's just a made-up name to make it sound like a little bit like Yahweh or, or what we think it might sound. When we read the word Lord in our scriptures, capitalized, we're to think not of a title in a sense, but of a name. Rather than a title or a position, a name. Whatever way we think or however we get to the title, Yahweh or Lord, What is clear is this, all these words, I am, I am has sent me to you, Lord, are centered around one Hebrew verb, the verb to be. I am who I am. That's quite a name, isn't it? I am has sent me to you. If any man took to himself that kind of name, We'd want to take him down a peg or two or three, wouldn't we? What colossal pride that would be if if a mortal described himself in such a way. But here God is telling us something about his personal name in these words, I am. He's telling us this. He's telling us he's the self-existent, self-contained, self-satisfied God who has true life and true blessedness in and of himself. We have here the most perfect, complete statement of absolute existence. I am. But a name that God is for himself, into which he has entered into covenant through this name, the Lord. The Lord has entered 
into covenant through this name. It's the name that God revealed himself by here and before as the one who makes covenant with his people. And throughout scripture, this title, Lord, capitalized, is nearly always connected to the covenant he made to the fathers, repeating now to Moses, and he's made with us. It's the name that Jesus took to himself multiple times throughout the Gospels. When he said, I am, he said, before Abraham was, I am. Friends, this ought to be staggering to us this very night. Throughout our generations, I am who I am. This God has not only made himself known, but he's entered fully into a relationship with us, his children. That we as Christians have enjoyed the most powerful deliverance and redemption. We enjoy the sweetest fellowship with this one, the most complete preservation unto glory, that grace upon grace is poured out upon us, and that this one personally indwells us by the Spirit, the great I am is with us and for us. This is our covenant God. Utterly trustworthy, wholly reliable, always there, always listening, always knowing and seeing the trials and joys of his people. Though we may feel deserted by God, he has said, I will never desert you. I will never depart from you, and I've given you my name as an assurance of this. Isn't it wonderful, the book of Revelation, chapter 22, the end of the vision of the new heavens and the new earth, what does it say about Christians? That God's name will be written on their foreheads. No longer the invisible sign now of baptism. Once it's done, it's done, and it's gone. You can't see it again. God's name stamped on his people forever. That's the certainty and the assurance God gives you this night that no matter what you're going through right now, he will be with you and his goodwill resides upon you. And finally, in verses 15 to 22, the God of Exodus is a God who delivers his people. I'm not going to spend too much time on this point because we're going to spend the next 10 chapters exegeting this very part of the narrative. But notice what God says here, and I'm going to be very quick. What does God say when he says, I'm going to deliver the people? Verse 16, first of all, he says, I'm the God of your fathers. He's telling Moses, he's telling the leaders of Israel, the children of Israel, think back. Remember. Remember the covenant. Now I am enacting my covenant promises. Don't forget that. We are to be people who look backwards as well as who look forwards, seeing the faithfulness of God. He says, I am the God of your fathers. Verse 17, he says, I'm going to bring them into a land flowing with milk and honey, the promised land. Verse 18, he says, there's going to be hardships along the way. Pharaoh's going to change his mind and he won't let you go until I batter him into submission. And verse 20, he promises to strike down the Egyptians. And as Israel is leaving Egypt, he says, you're going to plunder them. They're going to be so desperate to get rid of you, you've just got to ask them for their gold and their gems, and they'll send you out, pile down with wealth. 
put it all together, friends. We have a holy, covenant-keeping God who has attached his very name to this deal, this covenant, that we might be assured that his promise and deliverance and the plenty he gives us are true and real. We could almost say he signed his name in blood. Such is the reality of the new covenant. A holy covenant-keeping God who has attached his name to the very covenant who promises deliverance and plenty for his people. Shakespeare asked, what is in a name? Scripture tells us there's a whole lot in the name of the Lord. Scripture says the name of our Lord is a strong tower. It says our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. It says we trust in the name of the Lord. It says the nations will fear the name of the Lord. It says that we can call on the name of the Lord. It says the nations will be cut off from us in the name of the Lord. Scripture tells us that every time we receive the blessing, it is God putting his name upon us. Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So they shall put my name upon the people of Israel. And I will bless them. That's why there's no place in the world like this place right now. Because God puts his name on his people. So shall I bless them. Is this your God, dear friends? Is it? Is he your God? You see, God's not some impersonal force. He's a named God. A personal God. And by that name, friends, he assures you of his good will and of his salvation. If, friends, he delivered Israel by his power through Moses, how much more assured are we that we should be delivered from sin and death itself? that he has sent his son to die for us. How much more assurance have we than they did in the old because God himself has come down and said, I have delivered you. I am has sent me to you. I am who I am. So shall you put your name, my name, upon the people of God. Let's pray. Lord, we bless you and we honor you. We are truly humbled, Lord, by this word. That you who are so wholly different to us in moral character and quality should deliver us from our sins. And transform us so that we become like you. Lord, we pray for any this night 
without faith. Lord, take these meager words from my mouth. Rather, take the truth of your word and convict them of sin and righteousness and salvation. And for those of your children here this night, we pray, Lord, especially those going through times of hardship and trial, be pleased, almighty God, to bless them with these truths. You've promised never to leave us or forsake us. And for those that feel deserted right now, Lord, speak into their very hearts. They might know your presence. They might know your goodwill. They might know your love and care for them from this age to the next. You are the great King of heaven, and we bring our tribute to you even this very moment. In Jesus' worthy name, amen.